Chick trying to throw some right hands. McSorley tying him up. Now McSorley knocks off the helmet of Ojek. The fans are chanting, Gino, Gino. Welcome once again to 32 Thoughts, the podcast presented by GMC and the new Sierra AT4X. Elliot, we have a lot to get into today, but we both thought we should really start the program by mentioning the passing of Gino Ojik, who passes away at the age of 52, a really beloved hockey player. I know how much they loved him in Vancouver specifically. Yes. I think we can all recall him playing with Pavel Bure and, you know, how much, you know, Gino protected Pavel in, in Vancouver. You know, one of the enduring highlights is the penalty shot goal on, on Mike Vernon. Mm-hmm. Just your thoughts on, on Gino Ojik, who was really loved by everyone everywhere that he went. It's just another reminder of a forgotten era in hockey when the enforcer, the player who did a lot, who who had the toughest job to earn their living that way, was one of the most popular players on the team and in the market. Mm -hmm. For a long time, for example, in Toronto, the best-selling jerseys were Matt Sundin, whoever the goalie was, whether it was Curtis Joseph or Ed Belfour, and then Ty Domi. And actually, Gino Ojek said at one point in time, one of the toughest guys to fight was Ty Domi because of how good he was at positioning his body. And and that was the case in Vancouver is that, you know, Pavel Bure had a really popular jersey. Trevor Lendon had a really popular jersey. Kirk McLean had a really popular jersey, but so did Gino Ojek. He had an extremely popular jersey. When the announcement came on Sunday as they were playing the Hurricanes, I don't think anybody was surprised by the outpouring of emotion from Canucks Nation for Ojik. And I thought it was really interesting how after Ethan Bear scored to get the Canucks into that game, he um, said post-game. Yeah, it's very sad news. Like, I, I honestly haven't really talked to my family or my friends about it yet. Um, but, uh, yeah, obviously, it's, you know, I heard I scored right after he passed. So I think that's pretty powerful um yeah i mean it was meant to be you know maybe he was there for me on that shot and so it's just uh you know i'm just i'm just obviously yeah i haven't really got much to think about it on it yet but anyway. he's done playing you know I don't know how many of you are karmic thinkers like that or think like that mm. but it really connected with me when i heard bears quotes i don't know what memories you may have primarily of ojik you mentioned a couple there jeff but There's a couple that I'd like to mention. First of all, he told the story of when he was drafted. He wasn't expecting to be drafted. And even though he was there, he'd gone to get a hot dog because uh, he thought that he was still a couple rounds away from being picked. I absolutely love that story. And, And I think the other thing, Jeff, is just the relationship between him and Pavel Bure. Yeah. Pavel Bure comes over from Russia at a time where Russians are still fighting for acceptance in the National Hockey League. Uh, Gino Ojik uh, is First Nations at a time where, where a lot of members of First Nations communities felt like outsiders, and they connected because they weren't comfortable uh, yet in their shoes in their city. And th- it was a lasting friendship. And I think the thing that I remember, too, is... Do you remember why he was traded by the Canucks, Jeff? No, I don't. He wasn't a Mike Keenan guy. Pat Quinn was fired. Uh, Mike Keenan comes in. 
and a lot of the people who were prior to Keenan were going to be gone, but he stood up for Trevor Linden. Mike Keenan and Trevor Linden were feuding, and he stood up for Linden, and from that time, it was only a matter of when the Canucks were going to trade him. And I, I always respected that about Ojik. He stood up for his captain, even though Linden had given up the captaincy to Mark Messier, he had been Ojik's captain. And Ojik was doing what he always did, stood up for a teammate, and he got traded because of it. And he thought it was the right thing to do, and I really respected that about him. Our thoughts are very much with the family and the friends of the late Gino Ojik. Okay, Elliot, to the Vancouver Canucks. And not exactly a secret that it wasn't exactly yesterday when the Vancouver Canucks organization gave up on Bruce Boudreaux as their head coach. I'll tell you one thing. It doesn't look like the players have given up uh, on Bruce Boudreaux as a head coach. Sunday, uh, they go into Carolina, last game of the road trip. They beat Carolina in the shootout. Gorgeous move by Elias Pettersson. Who else but Elias Pettersson with a chance to win it for the Canucks. Pettersson into the slot, deeks to the backhand. He scores! Elias Pettersson with the Peter Forsberg patented move. And the Canucks win the final game of the road trip. They knock off the Metropolitan Division leading Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, we all know what's on the horizon. This is a big discussion. Your thoughts, first of all, on the positive, the win in Carolina. Well, not only the win, just the way they won. Uh, full credit to everyone on the team. They were down 2 nothing after one. They gave up a goal in the last minute of the first period. Bear didn't get them on board uh, until almost 38 minutes were done in the game. They had every excuse to pack that one in. You know, nobody would have been surprised that they had lost that game trailing by two goals to that point, but they found a way, and those guys deserve a lot of credit uh, for playing for their coach and for themselves, with Besser sending it into overtime with 17 seconds remaining in regulation. So Jim Rutherford is going to speak on Monday at 10 a.m. local, so that's 1 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, on the Tanner Pearson situation. And I think the the one thing to recognize here, and I, I think the one thing we have to be careful about is that, you know, we don't know the full details yet. We know he's going to have another surgery and probably two, one this week. We know there's going to be a meeting with the NHLPA. Now we're going to find out the Canucks side. And one thing you always have to be careful of is let's get the full story because we don't know it yet. And my biggest thing is, Pearson's health like hopefully this isn't a situation as everybody's worried about where uh, his career is potentially impacted you know the other thing I just wanted to say was about Quinn Hughes uh, Jeff yeah Quinn Hughes has, has gotten some criticism for speaking out I don't think you can ever be critical of somebody for standing up for a friend and a teammate I understand that injuries are not a thing that a lot of hockey players or people like to have discussed for example, when I had COVID for the first time, I didn't want to announce it on my Twitter feed. Like people said, you should announce you have COVID because you're missing time on the broadcast and it's obvious and you're not tweeting. And I was like, no, it's nobody's business but my own. I'm not doing that. But I, I think in this particular case, he's standing up for a teammate and a friend. And I just don't understand how anybody can fault that. Like that's what hockey's about, right? So mm -hmm. it's emotional and it's not exactly like Hughes is a guy who runs his mouth off. I can't see how anyone could have fault with that. 
Um, but the overall situation, Jeff, uh, is Boudreaux. And I don't know when the Canucks are planning on making the coaching change. And as I said Saturday night, I think it's time for them to just say to him, look, we're making a change. It's not right or not fair to have you keep around doing this. I think with Boudreaux, I think what you can do is say, look, we're making a change here. First of all, I don't think they wanted to do it on the road. I think there's a couple things going on here. I don't think they wanted to do it on the road. And I also heard that I think they want to do one announcement. I think they want to do it all at once. And yes, I get all of that. But we all see what's happening here. And I, and I think the right thing to do is, you know, you could always say to him, do you want to even go to him and say, do you want to coach it out or until we make the change? Because everybody knows what's going to happen here. Or Jeff, what you do is say, Bruce, we're not going to make you do this. You're going to go and we're going to have an interim do it until we have the next person in. But I think one of those two things should happen. I can't see Boudreaux quitting. To be honest, can, can you see a, 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 any way that they go to Bruce Boudreaux and say, hey, you know, do you want to step aside here? Can you see Bruce saying, no, I'm not going to? Like, here's the guy. Like, No, I, I think you're completely right, but I've just got to say it. I, I was just throwing ideas out there anyway. No, I get it. They, yeah. I mean, we I mean, we all, and you guys talked about this and showed it Saturday on Hockey Night during the uh, uh, the Vegas-Edmonton game. You know, Boudreaux saying. I just just wake up every day and, uh, and go to work until they tell me not to. Mm-hmm. I think the whole hockey world looked at that like you have to have the coldest heart not to feel some compassion for Bruce Boudreaux and what he's going through. And I thought that, you know, the point on the panel was the right one. Like show some compassion here. Like this has to end. Like it, it's gotten to a point. The the interviews at the beginning of the year that, uh, that Rutherford gave uh, were one thing. But now that we all know what's happening here and where this is going and who's going to be standing behind the bench. They've basically made a hire. Like I'm with you guys on, on Saturday. Th- th- this has to end. You know, this is a cruel and unusual. I don't think that Bruce would be interested at all in in stepping down or saying, now nah, I don't want to go through this, but put Mike Yo in there. I think that Bruce is a hockey lifer and as, as long as there's an opportunity for him to coach, he will coach. I think you step in and say, look, we can't keep putting you through this. Yeah, It's a bad look on the entire organization. And I understand your point of wanting to do everything in one fell swoop, but what's your grandmother's great line, Elliot? You plan, God laughs. That happens. Just do the right thing here. A couple other things there, Jeff. Uh, someone said to me today they wouldn't be surprised if the Canucks are looking at Sergei Gonchar too. The defense whisperer? I thought about him for Quinn Hughes. Yep. He's a smart guy. Look what he did with that Penguins back end. Mm-hmm. Look what he did for, I mean, I always think of Trevor Daly, but he's not the only one. Like, he really did a miraculous job with that Pittsburgh Penguins back end. I mean, oh, the strength is up front and all the firepower, etc. Man, that back end was really good during their Stanley Cup runs. And a lot of that was Sergei Gonchar. 2017, Latang gets hurt. That's the only blue line ever to win a Stanley Cup without a single player who'd ever received a vote for the Norris Trophy. Remarkable, eh? Pretty amazing. Sergey Gonchar. Listen, if you've discovered that there's a couple of you know contracts that you just can't move, what do you do? Well, you try to make them better and you try to make them work. I mean, I think the Sergey Gonchar move, if indeed it does happen, I think it's a smart one. Someone else mentioned to me that if they wanted someone local who's a really good defensive coach, they mentioned Richard Madvichuk, mm. who uh, used to play. He's still out there. 
and uh, he used to play, of course, for the Dallas Stars. Darian Hatcher's partner, that was another name that was mentioned, but I wouldn't be surprised if Gonchar uh, is on their radar. One more quick thing on the Vancouver Canucks. I mentioned this on Saturday on Hockey yep. Night. Bo Horvat and the Vancouver Canucks have spoken to teams. Um, it does revolve around players, not prospects. Yeah. Although there was at least one team who, you know, they they asked for the team's number one prospect, which is, is not exactly a surprise. But they're not doing this thinking, you know what, we're going to pick up draft picks and this is a rebuild. No, no, no. They're looking for, in any Bo Horvat deal, they are looking for players to step in and take roster spots. And like I mentioned on Saturday, I don't believe that this is to the point where anything is serious, where they're close to, to pulling the trigger on a deal for Bo Horvat, this is more just read the marketplace, get a sense of what you can do. Um, so you start to, to plan things out now that all the, the scouting meetings are getting done and some have already concluded. I, I think that we know where this is headed, even though Vancouver will most likely go back one more time uh, to have a kick at this to see if there might be a way to bring Bo Horvat back into the mix. Highly unlikely, but I never want to say 100% that it's not doable, but highly, highly unlikely. And I think we know where this one is headed as well, Elliot. Yeah, I, I think it's a very, very low chance that he gets re-signed. And I'm curious to see if they do let any teams talk to him. You know, right now the answer is no, as you said the other night. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if they get a team that says, we'll give you this prospect a prospect that Vancouver likes, but we have to be able to talk to him first. Like one of the things I know that happened with Kevin Fiala last summer is that when Minnesota and LA were talking trade, uh, Minnesota gave LA a window to get it done and they didn't get it done in time. But uh, from what I heard later, much later is they got enough legwork done that those two teams were comfortable making the trade that the Wild wanted and the Kings wanted because they knew they could sign him. That's what I wonder here. If you identify a prospect that you want and the other team says, yes, we'll put him in if we can sign him, that's a situation where Vancouver can use that to their advantage like Minnesota and LA did. It'll be interesting because it's one of two ways they can do this thing. And if it's just a strict rental, then that opens up uh, another conversation uh, in the offseason. Where does he end up next season? But that's getting ahead of ourselves here. But that's that's the latest that I, as I've been able to glean about Bo Horvat. You know, one person mentioned to me on Saturday as well that he could see Edmonton long-term being a fit for Bo Horvat. One, because A, you know, he's a, an excellent player. Two, he'd be amenable to going there. And three, who knows about the future of their two big dogs there, specifically, you know, Leon Dreisaitl, who's a couple of years away from unrestricted free agency. So I thought that was a, an interesting one to, to lob out there. I wonder how they could do it cap-wise, but it's an interesting I don't know. idea. You know, like one thing about Edmonton is, I think Evander Kane could be back as early as Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And how are they going to get him on their roster? Got to be some moves. And one of the things is, Costin deserves a spot. That's one of the best mo- trades in the NHL this year has been great one. Costin's trade to Edmonton. Also, Yanmark has played very well. I'm wondering if there's another forward, a surprise forward who goes on waivers. Well, they have to do something. So I think it's probably a forward, and you can go up and down the roster and th- see who the potential candidates are. Mm-hmm. But if they can't make a move otherwise, I wonder if it's going to be a, day, a couple days to check the waiver wire here. I don't know that I can recall a time where we've seen a team 
go through a situation as public as Vancouver is with both their head coach, which everybody knows is going to be fired, yeah. and their captain, which everybody knows is going to be traded. Yeah. I can't recall seeing this before. Elliot, please tell me someone, maybe you, are writing a book about the last couple of years. <laughs> Somebody has to. There's no question about it. Somebody has to. And also, we should just mention Luke Shen. Um, you know, we just mentioned the other night on the show. I, yep. It's interesting now. Tampa and Toronto know they're going to play each other. It's 95% they're going to play each other. And they're sizing each other up. They're looking at each other. And now they can say, and look, they both have to beat more than just each other. But you've got to get there first, right? Mm -hmm. And I think Tampa knows Shanny won two cups there. I think he's on their radar. I think they're looking for another third-line player. You can pick the mold in the Gourd, Goodrow, Coleman, Nick Paul, Brandon Hagel mold. I think they're looking for another one of those guys. And I've got no doubt that Toronto's looking at Tampa and saying, what do we need? But I, I think Shan is, is very much on Tampa's radar. They would, they would like to have him back tough one they don't have a first or a second yeah but if you're right and they're looking for more prospecty guys players maybe tampa's got something they like the one thing we do know about tampa there are always players in syracuse ready to join the nhl they find ways to get trades done listen to 32 thoughts the podcast ad free on amazon music included with prime You know, Elliot, maybe one of my favorite moments of Hockey Night in Canada's second intermission yesterday was when you said, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, don't take this out of context. Everybody calm down before I tell you this. But it sounds like there's been some progress between the Boston Bruins and David Pasternak. We'll get to the Pavel Zaka extension here in a second. But what's the latest with uh, their franchise winger, uh, who's a pending unrestricted free agent and perhaps an impending new contract? I got a hilarious text last night after the Toronto game. Right after it was over, the Bruins announced an extension for Pavel Zaka at four times 4.75. And someone texted me and said, did you get told Bruins are about to sign the check and assumed it was Pasternak instead of Zaka and you got the wrong one? And I laughed and I said, no, that's that's not true. I'm not that stupid. I'm pretty stupid, but I'm not that stupid. Don Sweeney came out, the GM, and he held a, uh, a media conference to discuss the Zaka signing, and he was he was asked if there was any update on Pasternak, and he just simply said no and, and didn't get much there. So this is the theory, and I want to stress again, it is a theory. I think the Bruins have spent a lot of time recently, and it makes sense, trying to take care of their business before the trade deadline. You know, the deadline's March 3rd. We're six weeks away, and I think the Bruins want to know what they have done long-term and what they don't. Zaka, they acquired. He had no contract after this year, and they took care of their business in that particular situation. So I think what they're trying to figure out is what business can we take care of before the deadline? And Pasternak is obviously included in that. I think the Bruins and Pasternak's agent want to keep this as quiet as they possibly can. But I heard yesterday in just doing my calls for the Saturday show that there are a number of people around the league who suspect that they are talking, they have made some progress, 
but for obvious reasons, they want to keep it pretty quiet. They just don't want to turn it into a frenzy or anything like that. That is the way the Bruins prefer to do business, Mm -hmm. and that is what everyone is trying to do here. You know, I got a lot of no comments. I didn't get any denials. I got a lot of no comments. Everyone wants to keep it under wraps here, but I do think they've made some progress. Now, are they on the one-yard line? No, I don't believe that. But are they in the red zone? I'm not even sure they're in the red zone yet. But are they in the defense's territory? Yes, I, I think they're in the defense's territory and they're trying to drive to get a score. This is NFL playoff weekend, so these are the analogies that I'm thinking of right now. I think they're driving and they're trying to get a score and we'll see if they get there. But I just generally get the sense around the league that everyone believes there has been some degree of progress made there. We'll see. Let's hope it closes for for Pasternak. To Pavel Zaka, Elliot, what always amazes me is his age. It feels like Pavel Zaka has been in the NHL for 20 years. That's the way it feels to me. Like It feels like it's a million years ago. I was watching him in Sarnia playing on a line with Jordan Cairo and Nikita Karestalev. He's only 25 years old. Like this is a really good deal for the Boston Bruins. 4.75 AAV. You know, when they put that check line together, it can be magical as well. I think this is a, this to me looks like a really smart, safe, good deal for the Boston Bruins. I don't disagree with you on that. And you know what? Forwards who can play multiple positions in multiple lines. That's it. In a cap world, you, you need those people. Oh, Uh, I can play him here. I can play him there. I can play him in this spot. I can play him in that spot. Yeah. I've always gone back to this. When Jordan Stahl was in his second year, he was really struggling. And I remember uh, Ray Shiro, that was the GM of the Penguins at the time, we talked about would he go to the World Juniors. And he said, no, he's an NHL player. And not only that, but he's a cap-friendly player. This was Mm -hmm. even before cap-friendly existed. Ray Shiro should probably ask for royalties. I was going to say, he got the name for it. He said he's a cap-friendly player. And not only because he was on his entry-level contract at the time, he just said that in the cap world, you're going to need flexible players who can play center, wing, up and down the lineup. And he talked about that at the time, that Jordan Stahl, even his second year, was an important player for the Penguins because he could do that. And obviously, I don't think Zach is Jordan Stahl, but I think he's a good, flexible player, and teams need that. Uh, One of the other things I mentioned on Saturday, and this is, again, the caveat being if the right deal is there um, based on performance, based on how much of a team-friendly contract he has, how much of a really good season he's having right now, that the Arizona Coyotes would be open to moving Karel Vimelka. And that kind of hints at something that you wrote about in your blog this week, which is, you know, one of the things that the Arizona Coyotes need to take stock of is, how close is Ivan Prosvetov? Like if he's really close, it makes it that much easier. And that's probably one of the things they're weighing right now. But I don't know that there are many, if any, we've talked about this a few times, players on that roster that they wouldn't be amenable to trading. Uh, I know, you know, last year there were a lot of rumors about even someone like Lawson Krause, who's having a really nice season. Would they entertain the idea of moving Clayton Keller, for example? And I, I just don't think that... It's a no-fly zone if someone called about Karel Vimelka. I think it might be a bigger deal than we would think of considering how long he's been in the NHL, but I, I still think that they're they're open to making a move with their goaltender. I've liked that guy for a couple of years now. I, I'm a fan of Vimelka. If I needed goaltending, 
I would definitely be interested in him. I, I wanted to mention you had a good little note on uh, on Vince Dunn, punting the contract to the end of the year. No hurry. Casual conversations, no negotiations. I think both sides, it sounds like they really like where this is going. You know, Vince Dunn during this winning streak has been outstanding. You know, going into Saturday's uh, game, and now they've won eight games in a row after, you know, handing it to the Chicago Blackhawks. Vince Dunn in that streak going into that game was a leading scorer for the team in that streak. He's been exceptional. He's playing 23 minutes a night. He's playing first pair. When you looked at Vince Dunn on the St. Louis Blues, and you can understand it, young defenseman, there's some big players in front of him, like some really like longtime established NHLers. I get it. I know it's hard to get into that top four, but did you not look at Vince Dunn and say, man, if only this guy could get a chance, like if there was somewhere where he could get more minutes um, you know, learn at the NHL level, make mistakes and not be punished for it and develop into that defenseman we saw playing with the Ice Dogs in the OHL. Uh, there could be a really good defenseman in Vince Dunn, and we're seeing it now. Um, he's on the last year of a $4 million per season deal. Uh, there's no hurry on either side, I think. They're going to let the season play itself out. He's arbitration eligible. Uh, that could be a factor here as well. And then one year away from unrestricted free agency. The one thing about Vince Dunn, and listen, I don't think Seattle wants to uh, to test this. Uh, I don't even think that Vince Dunn wants to, to test this either. As much as we talk about how much he's turned himself into a really good defenseman and a really good scoring offensive threat here, he's a little bit nasty too. Like, I know he's not the biggest dog out there, but he's a scrappy like street tough kind of player there's a whole lot there and the seattle kraken are the beneficiaries of of all of it he is due a raise we all know that don't know how much of a raise but there doesn't seem to be any urgency on on either side right now for vince dunn and that's fine one of the things about ron francis is he's patient so i i don't think that's going to be a problem uh for them there I met his uh, family on the ice when they won the Stanley Cup in St. Louis. Nice people. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy to see uh, their son doing very well. That whole Seattle thing, could you believe that? In below the goal line in front, Bjorkstrand scores! And the two-point conversion is good. For the fourth time this season, the Kraken have hit eight goals in a game. Take that, Blackhawks. That's what the Kraken are thinking after Chicago has the audacity to score on them in the third period, and the Kraken <laughs> double that. 8-3, Bjorkstrand on a two-point night with his seventh of the season, and this was right from the hash marks. First team in NHL or NBA history to do that? Sweep a seven-game road trip. Like, like, you think of all of the great teams we've seen in sports, in the NHL and NBA. You know, in our lifetime, we have seen, for the first time ever, 270 win NBA teams, mm-hmm. the Michael Jordan Bulls and the and the Steph Curry Golden State Warriors. And I can understand the Bulls not having an eight game uh, or seven game road trip because they're in the center of the of the continent. But I got to think maybe I wonder if Golden State ever had one. I, I don't know, but that's an incredible stat. Like what an absolute accomplishment that is for their team. Just phenomenal. It really is, and it's capped off with an 8-5 victory. Every forward on that team had a point in the first period. Remarkable, right? And at the end of it, Adam Larson, I'm not a huge plus-minus guy, but it's a legit stat, uh, is plus seven. Oh, the analytics people are going to kill you. 
I know. Plus seven. Come after him with the torches, everyone. <laughs> Jeff quoted plus minus. Uh, here comes. Send the monster out. Send the monster out. Uh, torches outside the castle gate. Here's the thing. And we mentioned this last podcast, I believe. This was supposed to be the month that killed Seattle. Like when you look at the schedule, this was the month that we looked at and we said, okay, they're piling up wins. It's cute. They're in a playoff position. That's Q2. But January will break Seattle because this road trip, it's three weeks of four games each week. Right? Like Islanders, Edmonton, Toronto, Ottawa, first week. Montreal, Buffalo, Boston, Chicago, second week. Now they're heading into the third week of January, and it's not getting any easier. Tampa, Edmonton, New Jersey, Colorado, and then they get a few days off, and then things ease up in the final week where they only have three games, Vancouver, Calgary, and Columbus. This was supposed to be the month that broke the Seattle Kraken. Not the month that put them into the rarefied air of smashing NHL and NBA records for each. It is absolutely amazing what they did here. I remember years ago when when I did the Raptors, they had a really successful road trip, and they and they came home and they got they got pasted in the first game, and and uh, and and I remember like one of the front office executives was like. Oh man, you do that great in the road. You put up a stinker like this at home, and and I'm like, are you guys satisfied with anything? <laughs> like, you just had an unbelievable road trip, and they were an expansion team or a second year team, and I mean, your fans get it. Like, they get it. Like, they understand that what you just did was spectacular, and you have to lose sometime. But I mean, I don't know what else there is to say aside from it is an incredible, incredible accomplishment. You know, the the thing that. We've talked on the podcast about how other teams warned after uh, exhibition games that Seattle has been much improved. I'm just wondering if they're going to continue to be able to score at this pace. That's the one thing that's really blown me uh, away about this. They've moved up to second in the league, tied for second with Boston, just behind Buffalo, 3.76. Here's the number, okay? So the NHL keeps... Uh, five-on-five shooting percentages since 2009 and 10. Seattle this year at five-on-five is shooting 11%, 11 11.2%. What's wild is Vancouver second at 9.7 and San Jose is third at 9.6. So if you want to be a good shooter, go out to the West Coast, I guess. But Hmm. So you go back and you input on NHL.com, five-on-five shooting percentage, above at or equal 11.2% since that time, here's what you get. Nobody. Whoa. Nobody. Seattle is having a shooting percentage season for the ages right now. I know what everyone's going to think. There's going to be regression, and, and maybe there will, but it's pretty impressive to watch. The best season, Jeff? For a player? No, for a team. Ooh, geez, I know. For a player, I think maybe the answer is Alex Tongay, but go ahead. Who's the team? For a player, hopefully there'll be somebody like Ian at the beginning of the podcast who's willing to do the research <laughs> for us because we're too lazy to do it. I'm just doing teams right now. I want to say career Alex Tongay may be number one. Would you stop saying players? I'm, I'm just talking throwing about it out teams there. here. Okay. What are you doing here? Just trying to distract you on a Sunday afternoon. That's all. You know I have, you know I have the attention span of a flea. Don't do this to me. Cats and laser pointers with Elliot Friedman every day on the podcast. The 2012-13 Toronto Maple Leafs, 10.7. And that was a 48-game season. Mm -hmm. The best in 82-game season, last year's Blues, Mm. 10.6. And forget, don't forget, there were like six guys on the Blues last year 
who had career high points. The other thing to mention too is it's not as if they're getting, you know, 915 and 920 or 925 save percentage goaltending either for Martin Jones and Philip Grubauer. Although he just came off a huge shutout streak, Jones. Yep. And you know the mantra, my new mantra about the NHL is just give me one more save. Mm -hmm. And that's what he's doing. Recently, he's been giving them a lot of saves, but all you need is one more save. Are you impressed at how I haven't mentioned that Daniel Sprong scored again? (laughs) (laughs) I knew it was coming. All right, we'll move on from Seattle. A couple of more things here. Wanted to mention Jake Ottinger and the mask dilemma from last week. Yes, you you did some research on this, yes. Made a couple of calls, and essentially what what it comes down to is if the goaltender's strap breaks, but he can't get his mask off, you're not getting the whistle. More so... You know, he tried to pull it off. I think it was like three or four times and couldn't, which the officials looked at and said, if you can't pull the thing off at three or four attempts, is it really a safety issue at this point? Or are you just trying to get a whistle? Now, I had wondered, I think you had wondered too, if something official had gone out to the NHL referees, you know, warning about these types of things. And we all remember what happened in that Dallas Winnipeg game with, yeah. with Connor Hellebuck. And the answer is, is no referees are still instructed to use their discretion. And in that case, even though there was a strap off and there is a, there is by the way, a secondary debate about strap technology and can the NHL work with manufacturers to come up with something different. So if a puck blows the top of the top of the mask, the strap doesn't come off automatically. There is technology, I believe, because people have DM me about it, that would help that, but that's for another issue. Officials are told to use their discretion. Uh, nothing has gone out saying, you know, wag your finger at the goaltenders and, and teach them a lesson. That's just simply the official looked at that. You know, there was a, was there a strap off? Yes. Uh, could the mask come off uh, on its own? No. When the goaltender tried to pull the mask off, could he initially? No. So the play proceeded. Nice to see you do some research. For a change. You left that part out. All right. A couple of things I just want to uh, chat about before we go to questions and answers. Yep. Number one, Ottawa. I'm going to be really curious to see Ottawa on Monday night in St. Louis. You know, everybody has a stinker. That was a real bad stinker, a, a really bad stinker in Colorado. Colorado's been really struggling. It's not like they're the regular avalanche juggernaut. And I always want to see how you answer after a game like that where you lose 7 to nothing. I think the Senators are still going to go out and try to get a defenseman. I've heard that they consider it important that they – try to get somebody and finish this year up strong. They feel that their players need it, that the organization needs it, and it's not acceptable to send a message that you can just wilt now through the end of the season. So we talked about the Dumba stuff the other day. I don't know if it's going to be him, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't be surprised if they go out and get somebody still, and I wouldn't even be surprised if it was a rental. I think they want to show their players and their fans that they're not going to coast, that they're going to try to compete as hard as they can, and if they have to make a move to get someone, they'll do it. And I expect they're going to come out on hard tonight, Monday night, because you can't have that. You, you cannot send a message that that's acceptable. You saw Brady Kachuk's comments after, no surprise, about how it's embarrassing. Yeah, it's embarrassing. Um yeah, it's embarrassing. Inexplicable as well, do you think? Yeah, I mean, just can't keep doing this. Um, it's frustrating. Um, 
Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's kind of, I'm at, I'm at loss for words right now. That's a home game for Kachuk. Yes. Uh, on Monday, not the one on Saturday, the one on Monday. Uh, you wanted to mention Lucas Reichel at some point during the podcast. So I, I thought this was really interesting. You know, Reichel played really well in his brief trial here. You know, he looks like he deserves more of an NHL opportunity. Three points in four games. I felt he did. and I, It sounds like a lot of the Blackhawks fans yeah. felt he did. And I've told you this many times. I believe your roster should be about who deserves to be on it. And to me right now, Lucas Reichel deserves to be on the Blackhawks roster. He should be playing right now because he's earned a spot. You never want to send a message or you want to do it as little as possible that politics or waivers and non-waivers is the kind of move that you decide what you're going to do. Now, that said, I thought Kyle Davidson's comments when he discussed this were really interesting. And it intrigued me a little bit about Davidson. I don't like tanking. The league doesn't like tanking, I don't think. But we're all understanding right now, after especially after watching the World Juniors, why teams are tanking. And basically, Kyle Davidson and the Blackhawks have a plan. And they have chosen to stick to that plan. We... we make sure that they understand the big picture and there's there's a roadmap there and there has been from the start of the year and, and make sure that um, when you're making decisions that they they understand them and you know as we've talked about uh, in the past with with players they don't necessarily uh, it's not their job to see the big picture but it's your job to help them understand and walk them through why you're doing things and why you think it's best long term and and that's something we've done with with not only Lucas, but with a lot of our prospects that, you know what, they're, they're, they're knocking on the door. And, and some of them, could they play in the NHL? They probably could. But uh, it, it, there's, it's a question of what's best for their development long term and being in situations that we can provide them in Rockford on a very good team in a very good league, um, I, I think is something that... And they have really chosen really to stick really, to that plan. Uh, place high, and I can't high say I like it. But the one thing, it it gives me a little bit of respect for Davidson as a leader of the hockey operations of the team, what he believes in and what he's doing. Kyle Davidson and the Blackhawks have a plan, and that is to get Connor Bedard. And this move is about that plan. Again, I can't say I like it. I can't say I would do the same thing. Because I think the toughest thing in sports is to stick to a plan because of the pressure and because fans vote with their wallets and you have to listen to your fans absolutely when they vote with their wallets. And there's a lot of noise out there right now and on social media about everything. Everything's an outrage. And I thought it was interesting that Kyle Davidson basically said, I know you're not going to like this, And I know people don't like this, but this is our plan. And I'm going with our plan. I think on some level, it says something about Davidson that not only would he do it, but he would go out there and explain it. Like I said, I don't like it. I understand it. I do understand it. The last general manager we heard discuss this as openly was Tim Murray with the Buffalo Sabres. The, the great tank battle between Buffalo and Arizona. 
which just was remarkable. That was one for the ages. Um, but you're right. Lucas Reichel looked fantastic. He really did. Three points, four games. Uh, I, I understand. I, I should say this too, Jeff. If I was the player, I wouldn't like it. If I was the player's agent, I wouldn't like it. Well, that's just it. Like he gets called up, he performs well, and because of that, he gets sent down. Like that's some real pretzel logic right there. It's counterintuitive. Correct. But what did we talk about a couple of weeks ago here on the show? Every organization knows how good Connor Bedard is. Everyone in NHL organization who watched the World Juniors said, yeah, that's what we're talking about. The key is now fans know. Fans know. Now Kyle Davidson can go out there and say, this is why we're doing it, and fans will accept it. That's the difference. Yes. Because the World Juniors didn't shock any NHL teams at all. But now all fans know. All fans know. a smoky break for our thought line partner montana's barbecue and bar with meats prepared and smoked in-house it's no wonder why they're canada's home for barbecue check them out and as elliot always says try the ribs yes their ribs are smoked in-house every day until they fall off the bone and don't forget montana's has all you can eat ribs Every Wednesday. Head on down to Montana's Barbecue and Bar and take the all-you-can-eat rib challenge every Wednesday. Smoking good barbecue only at Montana's. Some conditions apply. Visit montanas.ca for details. Hey, Jeff and Frege. This is Ian Holm calling from Owensound, Ontario. Really excited to hear you guys are going to be up here doing the podcast live at Hartwood Hall. I unfortunately could not score any tickets for it. It's probably the hottest ticket of the whole weekend. But I do have an answer for you. The team that has drafted the most Owensound attack players would be the LA Kings with a grand total of six, which actually doubles everyone in second place, which is a big tie between Buffalo, Colorado, Florida, Philly, and Toronto. Hopefully I can get some bonus points with that little extra bit there. Anyway, hope to see you guys when you're up here and uh, cheers. We'll see you then. Bye now. Okay, Elliot. And first of all, Ian, thanks for that phone call. Uh, that was on the thought line. one 311 I love it when our listeners do our homework for us. Yes. And uh, so we always appreciate that because one thing you should probably glean by now from this podcast is Elliot and I are lazy. We love it when other people do our work. And yes, Ian, thanks for that. And uh, as you reference, uh, the podcast will be in Owen Sound as part of Scotiabank Hockey Day in Canada. Uh, live recording of the podcast Thursday at Hartwood Hall, 3.30 Eastern. Guests include Lanny McDonald, Joey Hishon, Les Binkley, Blair Turnbull, Mike Fuda, and Bobby Ryan. And yes, the answer was the Los Angeles Kings. I'm excited about this one. I love when we do these live events for each. First of all, Ian just won a couple of tickets for doing our work for us. Oh, is he getting tickets? Yeah, Amal came up with an extra pair because Amal is just as lazy as we are, and he wanted to make sure that Ian was rewarded for doing his work too. So, Ian, oh, good. congratulations. And we're going to inform people by Monday. Everybody should receive the notification of whether or not they won tickets. And this is just more proof mm. that the world is full of confirmation bias, Jeff, because <laughs> who used to work in Owen Sound but Michael Fuda, yes. who was a longtime member of the Kings front office. The Los Angeles Kings. Very good.
Okay, Elliot, uh, we'll finish up the podcast with some emails. Uh, the address is 32thoughts at sportsnet.ca. The uh, phone line, 833-311-3232. 1-833-311-3232. And let's start there with a Sportsnet colleague, Frege. Hi, guys. It's Luke Gazdick, your fellow Sportsnet employee, longtime listener, first-time caller. As a beneficiary of the waiver wire, I was picked up by Edmonton from Dallas to start my NHL career, and seeing the success Eli Tolvanen has had in Seattle, I was wondering why teams don't use the waiver wire more. I understand at the beginning of the season, it can be tough with uh, rosters at, at capacity, but uh, I just see teams that could use an upgrade, and, and some players on waivers can do that for them. So I was wondering why teams hmm. don't use it more. Is it just teams overvaluing their players or what? Thanks, guys. Have a great day and continue the good work on the pod. Cheers. Luke, I think one of the reasons this year is simply that the league is so tight. Cap space is at such a premium that you're not making a move unless you absolutely think that you have to do it or you believe you 100% need the player. I, I think when the cap goes up, we're going to see a situation where you see more of these claims get made. But to me, that's it. Jeff, do you see any other particular reason? No, not at all. Um, and considering how many, look, I mean, just look how many teams are in LTIR. Look how many teams are, are right up against it. There's not a lot of room for it. And the uncertainty about about next season and what the cap's going to be at, anybody that has term, teams are going to look at and are going to say, hmm, if his contract expired this year, maybe we'd put in a claim, but we don't want to touch anybody with term for a player that's on waivers because we just don't know. Like that's the thing about waivers. Like even with even with Tolvanen, how many teams was it for each? Twenty two teams. Twenty two teams passed on him. Well, it's amazing considering what he's doing with Seattle. Like he's yeah. he's filling the net. Um, but twenty two teams said we're not sure about this, and right now it's a situation where. I don't know too many teams pick someone up on waivers just to take a flyer on them anymore. Like once upon a time, it was like, ah, let's take a chance and see if it works out because we have the flexibility to do that. But now that there isn't that flexibility for each, you're not seeing teams that frivolous. How about that? That frivolous about the waiver wire. There's no longer, I'm going to take a gamble and maybe grab this guy. You have to know that he can fit in long gone. And we'll see maybe when the cap goes up, it goes back to this, but long gone uh, our teams looking at the waiver wire and saying, Oh goody, I can get a free player. Those days. I mean, they might be temporary are gone for now. That's what I think. Ruben from Stockholm submits with an a plus goaltender, pretty much being an absolute necessity for doing damage in the playoffs, let alone winning the ultimate prize why aren't more teams taking swings at goalie prospects with first round draft picks? I don't keep tabs, but to my knowledge, goalies are seldom picked in the top 10, even top 20s with so much potential reward. Why not more risk taking? The belief has always been that goaltenders develop later than other players, that defensemen develop at a certain age, forwards develop at a certain age, and it takes goaltenders, Elliot, longer to do that so you don't want to sacrifice a first-round pick. That is changing, and we've seen that start to change, but by and large, that's always been the belief among scouts. Your thoughts on that one? I think your answer is is really good, Jeff, um, because if you take a look at some high goalie picks that were misses, like say, for argument's sake, a guy like Brian Finley, who I thought was going to be a really good goalie, it's not like there haven't been some really high overall picks that haven't been complete misses too. 
I think there's a general feeling of goalies are voodoo. And in the analytics age, I think more and more people have chosen to believe that. Goalies are voodoo, and they think their models are better at predicting scorers and skaters than they are goaltenders. I just think that because there's so few people in the NHL that really know goalies because it's such a specialized thing, I think people are less comfortable drafting them high. Maybe I'm wrong. Someone will reach out to me and tell me if they think I'm nuts. But how many GMs or people with high titles and organizations, Jeff, are goalies? Rutherford is. He, he was a goalie. Ken Holland. Ken Holland was a goalie. Uh, Martin Brodeur, who's moving up the devil's chain, he's a goalie, obviously. But how many other goalies really have high positions? Well, I wonder how much of that, though, is just a byproduct of teams only have two goaltenders at a time. That could be another one, too. There's fewer goaltenders in general, and that probably accounts for why. Like The the thing that I've always wondered about, and maybe I shouldn't, is why so few goaltenders turn into coaches. Managers, yes. Coaches, not so much. It's only been a handful. Yeah, I think this is all part of it. All part of it. I got to tell you something. Hang on. I, I I do have to tell you something. We'll wrap this question on this one. You mentioned Brian Finley. I ran into him a couple of weeks ago. So our kids were- uh, That's were both, random. Were, I know, but you're going to love where this is going. So I ran into Brian Finley at uh, Scotiabank Pond, which is a great rink in downtown Toronto. Um, and it's the headquarters of the GTHL. And my kid- and his kid were both playing different age groups. They were playing at a tournament at Scotia Pond. And his kid plays on the same team as Ken Reed, our colleague from Sportsnet. His kid, who's a goaltender. No kidding. Yes. And so... my uh, One of my uh, cousin's kids plays on that team too. Oh, really? So look at this. Yes. This, is, this is all then coming together. Mm-hmm. So had a conversation with him. And Ken comes up to me and he says... Me and Finley are talking. And he comes up to me. He goes, Brian Finley knows everything about AAA minor hockey in Ontario. Ask him any question. He knows it. As a matter of fact, you know what his nickname is? And I go, what, Kenny? He goes, we call him the Finsider. Brian Finley <laughs> knows everything about AAA minor hockey. The Finsider, Brian Finley. I forgot to tell you that one. I was like, oh, I got to tell Fridge that one. Yeah, the Finsider, <laughs> Brian one. Finley. Like the Finsider. <laughs> the Finsider, Brian Finley. I love it. I love it. Uh, great question. Thank you so much for that one. Ben in Boston. I just had a thought. A lot of teams are now playing with four forwards and maybe five now on the power play. What are the chances of a team trying the opposite on a penalty kill and playing with three defenders and a forward? Or dare I say four defenders and you'll like this one, Elliot. Ben from Boston submits. Great job, Elliot. <laughs> I asked the coach this question. I sent him a text this morning and he responded back. I'll just read it out to you. Someone tried that in the U-Haul, the UHL, United Hockey League, formerly the Colonial League. No kidding. Yeah, someone tried that in the UHL back in the day, I think. That said, it's dumb. Ideally, on a kill, you have four changes. 30-second shifts for pressure and energy that the best penalty killers use effectively. Plus, if you have your four best D on to start, what happens when you change? Not a lot of great matchups could happen at the end of the kill. Mm -hmm. Plus, great kills also have a threat to score. So, the idea might be right, but the execution would be a disaster. I like the chaos, but not effective. So that is your answer from the the unnamed coach. Great idea, 
but could be an absolute disaster once those four come off the ice. It's an instant recipe for losing a line matchup. I was actually thinking that the reason I would say no is, you know, for example, if a defenseman takes a penalty, then you've got four defensemen on the ice and you've only got one fresh. Yeah. And secondly, it gives you more room for something to go wrong with your defenseman, one getting hurt, uh, something like that. Like at least you have 12 forwards, right? If you lose one or you lose two, it's easier to cover. If you lose one or two D, you're really screwed, especially in a big game. Emery from Edmonton. We'll finish up with this one today. Longtime fan from Edmonton. I was wondering if the NHL has ever considered a most improved award like the NBA. Don't understand why they wouldn't. Who would you guys pick for such an award other than Tage Thompson, LOL? Thanks for everything you do, Elliot and Amel. Love your work. Just <laughs> Boy, we've got the anti-Jeff crowd today. These are my yeah. favorite people. Don't like it. Don't like it one bit. So <laughs> I texted someone from the NHL this one as well. I was actually doing work Sunday morning, Elliot. I wasn't. What I got back was, was two sentences. Never heard of it. Sounds like a goofy award for the NHL. I kind of like the idea. <laughs> and by the way, I would, I would submit, I don't know if it would be most improved or maybe comeback player. Like Eric Carlson would be in that conversation. Jake DeBrusque would be in that conversation. Tage Thompson obviously would be in that conversation. Elliot hates it, but I'm going to say his name again. He'd win it by a mile. Elliot hates it, but I'm going to say his name again. Daniel Sprong. Tage Thompson is going to win it by a mile if they had one. Yes. Yes. If they have something like that, I agree. But I the like caveat, the idea. I'd love to have a most improved player award. I think it's a great idea. The caveat is, though, other than Tage Thompson. Oh, is this like other than Connor McDavid for the heart? It's 1987. We're having a draft. You go first overall, you can take anyone other than Gretzky. Or you can't have a second round pick if you take Gretzky. Pick if you do it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. All right. That's some good stuff. Anything uh, to wrap up here? Um, Elliot, anything top of your mind to kick off the week? No, I, I have no mind. It's Sunday morning. My my mind is completely bleh. Well, actually, we do have one thing, Elliot. Remember like a million years ago when you sat down with Nigel Dawes of the Mannheim Eagles? <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to say that. I, I wasn't going to say that because that makes like it feel like almost not doing anything. No, we just we have a really challenging schedule. That's all that that is. Um, so Elliot sat down with Nigel Dawes while we were in Germany. He plays with the Mannheim Eagles of the DEL. And if you know anything about Nigel Dawes and you're about to learn more, his journey is kind of incredible, and you'll hear a lot of this. This podcast is dropping on Wednesday. What do you recall from this interview? Like, what stands out to you about Nigel Dawes? His story about Anthony Stewart and Dion Phaneuf is uh, is really good. About them on the bus at the World Juniors, that's the one that really you know stands out to me the most. Think about it; it's been twenty years since that World Junior almost, and he's still playing. It's pretty amazing. Speaking of Anthony Stewart, congratulations yes. to Anthony and Chris. Uh, it was wonderful to see number 13 and number 24 at the Leon Center, Kingston Frontenacs, uh, honoring those two gentlemen, Anthony and Chris Stewart, both first-round NHL picks. Uh, Anthony played 248 games, 238 points with the Frontenacs. Chris played 187 games, uh, 199 points. Congratulations, to Chris and yes. to our colleague Anthony on this great honor. It was wonderful to see the visuals. We're all proud of those two. I think everybody is two outstanding people and 
listen, man, congrats. It was a, a wonderful night at the Leon Center in Kingston on Saturday. I love Anthony working with him. I mean, he's the gift master. He's <laughs> just got a hilarious sense of humor. We talked about what it would be like if they filmed our conversations while we watched the game. <laughs> Anthony would be the star of Sportsnet if those conversations he's were He's so filmed. funny. I don't know how I hold it together for some of those intermissions after some of the stuff he said in, in during the periods. It's crazy. And always want to mention his work with Hockey Equality, him and his wife, Shante, uh, to say anything of what he does as a broadcaster and what he does as a coach and a trainer and how many kids he helps. He is one of the most positive people in the game, period. Someone that everybody should respect. Taking Us Out is a Holland-based two-piece indie pop band with dynamic vocals and funky guitar riffs. Tessel dropped their debut EP in 2021 after creating a collection of personal stories recorded during the lockdown. Last week, the guys released their follow-up project together, and each track from the EP has its own sound. With IDK, I don't know, here's Tessel on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. Enjoy. around 